All right, we call ourselves Forge Family. <clears throat> Last week we were hip deep in the introduction to the New Covenant Ministry. And this is the section that's going to be a target for the podcasts that are coming. As you recall, we, we looked at the, the history of Corinth, the record of Paul's epistles to the Corinthian believers and churches, and some of the problems that had disrupted those, those fellowships. And then uh, we looked at Paul's anguish over uh, the believers that he had led to the Lord, and now they're, they're in a mess. <clears throat> so the image uh, I used uh, was of a burrito wrapper. They have those in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? Yeah, they do. Okay. Um, where the, the passages immediately prior to this section in uh, 2 Corinthians 2, Chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 14, that goes all the way to chapter 7, verse 2. The, the, the passage is immediately before that. And uh, following that, they're basically filled with tears, with uh, deep concern for the church, for Paul's list of his sufferings, for Christ. And then you turn to this, this parenthesis almost uh, in the middle of it that deals with new, to- new covenant ministry. And it's sweet, it's seasoned with grace and promises, and it's joyful. So let's pray as we begin to unwrap this passage together. Father of lights, you are the giver of good gifts. Thank you for this timely study. This is a classic opportunity to watch Paul zoom out, to get, to get his nose up out of his circumstances and be above that, get a, get a different view, Lord. And, and he does it when he's in the middle of spiritual anguish for the Corinthian believers. So, Lord... Um, he, we watch him while he gets set with a whole new perspective by Holy Spirit. <clears throat> We're asking you, Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears uh, to the resources from this, from this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. So open your second Corinthian text if you've got them. And we're going to be in uh, chapter 2, starting verse 14. Now, the immediately preceding text in verse three, verse 13 has, has Paul departing from um, an opportune ministry situation in Troas, uh, kind of up on the Bosporus, the Hellespont, you know, the, the very point of the connection between Asia Minor and Europe. And he gets there, and, and the, the Lord opens the door. There's great opportunity, but his spirit is in a twist. He just has no rest in his spirit, and so he, he moves on. And he heads across that body of water and goes to try and find Titus in Macedonia. Now, the setting for verse 14 may have been the prompt of the Holy Spirit for Paul to zoom out, to get above it, to just step back and and come to the Lord in thanksgiving, even as his heart is so unsettled. Paul's eyes and heart are lifted high above his emotional state and his concern for the Corinthians. And it says, verse 14, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. So Paul's heart leaps up in thanksgiving to God. The text says that it's God who always, not sometimes, not sometime in the past, not for the future leadership we hope for, but always leads us in his triumph. Critical to our understanding of this text is the word us. 
it, this isn't the Apostle Paul who is crying out, but ascending on some apostolic elevator just to get into the presence of God. No, this is his cry with us. And, and, and we have the same rights to cry out to the Lord and come into his presence. Paul uses a word picture from the Greek language. It's actually transliterated because it looks a lot like it in Greek and then it comes over into English and the word is triumph. Now, the Romans had a history of some 350 of such triumph celebrations. So there's a lot of data that Paul is drawing on. The triumph is, uh, was a supreme honor that was given to a conquering general on his return from victory. The Roman Senate had to get out of, out of town, go outside, meet him outside of town, and determine whether or not they could confer such an honor on him. And there's some qualifications for that. Um, that general had to be the actual field commander in the battles that were fought. He had to accomplish an overwhelming victory such that the campaign was finished and that region, that whole region was pacified. There needed to be a body count of opposed warriors and soldiers who were taken down in a single battle that exceeded 5,000 dead. This is Rome, okay? <laughs> then there had to be a positive extension of territory that was won. This just wasn't just a, uh, a pushback against an attack. It wasn't just an, uh, uh, to, to, uh, you know, to make a correction of the borderline. This was actually a significant advance. The loser in the battle had to be a foreign foe. So it was not a civil war battle, of which Rome had a number of those. Lastly, the victorious Roman legionnaires were to be returned home, not abandoned back there, wherever the battle was won. They had to be brought home to Rome for a triumphal entry. <coughs> Excuse me. The granting of a triumph to the victorious general was both a military and a religious celebration. The entire population of Rome turned out. They stood on the sidelines and they cheered as the legionnaires and their general marched past. Our pale equivalent of that might be at the close of World War II when the war in Japan was finally over and they signed the, the papers uh, and there was a ticker tape parade in New York City. Or when the Yankees, Yankees, okay, the Yankees won the World Series, there'd be a ticker tape parade. Or when America sent men to the moon and returned safely, they would. They had a ticker tape parade. That was nothing like the extravagance of this triumph that I'm going to describe to you. The procession was begun by priests walking before the long train of military splendor. They swung censers. These, in which there was burning incense and they would swing it back and forth and fill the air with a sweet smelling fragrance. Some of you were raised in high church. You know what that is. Some of you instantly get a headache when that, <laughs> when that when, here comes the incense. Oh! Behind the priests came Rome's officials and the Senate followed by a raft, a raft of trumpeters who continuously blared out the call to celebrate. Next came huge carts filled with rich dress armor and weapons that had been captured in battle. Exquisite art 
and sculpture, golden statues of the defeated foes. And in the case of the um, triumph that was given to General Pompey, one of two or three that he earned, okay, he had carts loaded with 75 million pieces of silver coin that he had taken as part of looting the country that he just had conquered. When General Titus was granted a triumph in Rome after crushing Jerusalem and all of Palestine in AD 70, with him back to Rome came the seven-armed, seven-branched golden candlestick out of the temple with the table of the golden table of showbread and the golden trumpet seized from Herod's temple in Jerusalem before it was burned and then dismantled. Next in the procession came huge murals, uh, portrayals, pictures of the conquered lands and models that, of conquered citadels and ships. This was like a mobile museum that's passing in front of the citizens of Rome. <clears throat> a, a massive white bull in full decorative floral regalia is marched through the, the, the order of the, of the train of of this tri um, triumph and it will be sacrificed on Capitol Hill in Rome to Jupiter, the god of war. <clears throat> then follows this beautiful ornate chariot drawn by four matched horses carrying the conquering general and his family members. The general is dressed in purple. Both his tunic and the toga over the top of that is embroidered with gold palm fronds and stars behind standing behind the general is a slave who holds a gold crown that's encrusted with jewels over his head throughout the entire march and that same slave would lean in and whisper in the ear of the general telling him of his great vulnerabilities his yet unknown secrets and follies his dark proclivities, his suppressed failures, his impending death, and on and on. Following behind the chariot came prisoners in chains. These were the kings, the princes, the families, the generals, and the leaders of the conquered nations. These prisoners would shortly be imprisoned and then executed or thrown to the beasts in the Colosseum. In the case of, of Versailles-Gitarix, he was the, the chieftain of the Averni tribes, the Gauls, in France, southern Germany. And he, he was the general who led the, the Gauls to fight Julius Caesar. He lost. And so they transported Versailles-Gitarix into Rome and put him in the, in the dungeon of the Mamertine prison for six years. They'd pull him out now and again. Everyone laugh and point their fingers at him. They put him back in the dungeon. At the end of six years, they strangled him. Behind the prisoners in chains came a vast number of people seized after the victory, and they were artisans, those who were particularly, broad, uh, particularly strong or beautiful, those who were scholars, those with special skills, shipwrights and metal workers and armorers and perfume people. If you had a, a highly prized career, Rome wanted you. And all these people were marching and trained behind the general. They were not in chains, but they were going to be sold into slavery. Next in the march order came the Roman lectors, a civilian group 
who carried the bundled fasces. These are rods that were all bound together with an axe. And uh, that was a, a symbol of Rome as, as the Republic, if you will. It signified civil authority. And these lectors would sort of troop around behind magistrates and senators because at any moment, a magistrate might flick his hand at somebody and those lectors would then follow through with capital punishment. Right there. <clears throat> Following them came musicians with lyres playing and singing the praises of the victor and his troops. Then more priests with more incense. Every temple in the city was burning some form of sweet aroma and incense. The whole city was just a cloud of it. The route was clouded with these sweet smelling aromas and the, they'd thrown flowers all over the, the, the route and so the mashed floral petals added their own sweet fragrance to it as well. Lastly came the victorious army, the legionnaires in full dress armor, carrying their flags and poles topped with Rome's golden eagles. And as they marched, they cried out, Io triumphe! As in, we won too. We won the battle. We won the victory. Now, history records that some of the triumphs accorded by the Senate to the conquering generals lasted for three days. Okay? It's a lot of incense. <laughs> okay? But we don't know. <clears throat> was, that, was it really that long? Was there that many people in line? Or did the Senate simply say, do it again? Do it again? We don't know. <clears throat> Verse 14 in the text, here Paul cries out about God's triumph in Christ. He was his only begotten son, the promised Messiah, the one who was born as a virgin in Bethlehem, who lived a sinless life, who displayed the works and words and ways of the Father for three years. He raised up disciples, who was betrayed, taken before Caiaphas, then Pilate, then Herod, and then back to to Pilate being consigned to crucifixion. He died on the cross and was buried for three days in a borrowed tomb and then arose in resurrection power on the third, on the third day. He appeared to his followers for 40 days and then ascended to the right hand of the Father to intercede and to reign. God's affirmation of this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's an open and plain statement that a triumph is coming. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. This is what he says. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of us our transgressions having canceled out their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us and he has made it excuse me, he's taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through the cross <clears throat> now the second half of verse 14 is also involved in this word picture of the triumph with its clouds of sweet aromas swirling through the crowd and throughout the whole city for that matter. Paul wrote that God makes visible 
He demonstrates. He shows forth through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Paul chooses to use the form of knowing God as knowledge that is experiential. It's knowledge that's been imprinted into us. A man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. Our experience of the sweet presence of God through Christ, made known to us by Holy Spirit, <clears throat> spreads around us the fragrance of His presence wherever we are. That could be a babysitting co-op. It could be in class. It could be a cooking lesson at lunch with fellow employees, dinner with your spouse or with clients. So this fragrance is not church-based. It's your life and itinerary based. You leak that fragrance everywhere you go. The swirling clouds of incense that swept over the crowd in Rome along the triumph route were signifying to those in change in the, in the chains that death was imminent. To those who were marching it without chains, that aroma said, I will live. I will have life. Now to some, that aroma of Christ around us is a winsome, beautiful, attractive fragrance that draws them to Christ and confirms that they're headed for more of life. For others, the aroma of Christ is an odor that is rank, hated, deadly, and signals death and more death that awaits those who reject Christ. It's not our responsibility to oversee the results. It is God who through us spreads abroad the presence of Christ and people choose him or reject him. Now, I was a young man in ministry. I was an intern at Peninsula Bible Church, part of the pastoral internship back during Jesus movement. And I was asked to do a memorial service in a chapel uh, at a cemetery, it's a cemetery chapel. And I didn't know the lady who died, but her kids were part of the high school group and they were being discipled at, at PBC. So I said, yes, I would do that. So I went and met with the family and the kids and they began to talk about their mom. And they talked about her knowing Jesus for being a little girl, loving him. But then she went through a series of very abusive relationships and a very abusive marriage. It was so abusive, she ended up in the hospital. And when she got out of the hospital, she fell into alcoholism and shortly thereafter died, suddenly. And it was a real shock to her, to her younger kids. But as we gathered in that chapel at the cemetery, and I began to lead through this series of memories of mom, uh, the younger kids who loved Jesus were sitting down front, and they were surrounded by their friends from high school. And there were a bunch of people in the room that loved the Lord. The older children had been absent from that home for a long time. They had gone off on their own, and they were standing in the back with co-workers. And the looks on their faces when I said, this woman had Jesus Christ as her Savior. They looked appalled. They were angry. They were, the look was, get me out of here. Uh, they, they looked as if I just dropped a, an angry skunk on the casket. There were tears. There was some joy. Uh, there, was, uh, there was some laughter. None of which reached that back row. And there, were, there was a razor down the middle of that chapel. It was a revelation to me. You present the, who Jesus is, and people receive 
or people reject it. Verse 15 and 16 bears that witness. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And then Paul says, and who is adequate for these things? Can you see how God reacts when we carry the fragrance of Christ about? It is a pleasing fragrance to him. Forty-two times in the Old Testament, there's a reference to a pleasing aroma. And all forty-two times, it says, that pleased God. The word Paul used for being saved here is sozo minois. It means present tense that continues. It's an ongoing present tense. Those who are being saved, healed, and delivered. Now, late in my time on staff with Peninsula Bible Church, years after that that uh, memorial service at the cemetery um, I was a chaplain at Stanford University I had heard from a man now about a man from PBC who had, who had uh, been hospitalized he was not expected to live and so I got myself over there and uh, introduced myself uh, I'd seen him but we weren't we weren't friends previously and uh, he he was a little dopey a little drugged um, but he could pay attention, and he could answer for part of the time. And so for about 15 minutes, I just just said, I, I know you just received the Lord into your heart just a few, a few months ago, and this is what's going to happen. You're going to leave your earth suit behind, and you will go into the presence of Jesus, and he awaits you, and it's going to be joy. And, and, and for about 15 minutes, we just talked through what was coming. And um, he smiled, and he nodded, and he went to sleep. During that same period of time, there was a nurse that had been working behind us in that room, in and out, and, but she'd been listening. And so she noticed he was asleep. She turned to me and she said, are you a Christian? And I went, absolutely, yes, I am. And she, she smiled, she nodded, and she thanked me for the scriptures that she'd heard. So you have two examples right there of sozo menores, being saved, healed, and delivered, right there in that room. Ephesians 5 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. When we give ourselves up, when we don't insist on our rights, when we choose to humble ourselves, when we turn the other cheek, when we take less than we deserve, that, too, is a pleasing aroma to the Father. It looks like rank foolishness to those who want nothing to do with Jesus. But who's the judge here? We know to whom we answer. Now, verse 16 talks about death and even deeper lasting death. And life to even greater, longer lasting life. It's here that Paul throws in the towel. He says, who's adequate for these things? Who's sufficient? Who's equipped? Who's capable? If we think life is all about us, our priorities, our needs, our pleasures, our standing, our place, our identity, our our control, guess what? When we're asked that question, our answer is probably not me. 
So let that question sit with you this week. Paul's going to give his answer in the next section. Who is adequate for these things? Paul's expectation and ours was not that he was destined for a mighty ministry by his own efforts. He simply believed that God was doing something through him at that moment, even in frustration and sadness. Remember, he walks into Troas and he's got his spirit in a twist. He talks to some elders. He doesn't preach. He's just present for a little while. And this door opens for great ministry opportunity. But he doesn't preach. He just realizes the fragrance of Christ has been released. They get it. I'm gone. He was exuding the fragrance of Christ everywhere he went. And people were being set free from sin and death. That alone is cause for his shout, Thanks be to God. To graduate from seminary, I had to submit a master's thesis. So I submitted my my work, my argumentation, and my thesis committee rejected it. And uh, I totally disagreed with them. I believe they were wrong, and I believe they had a theological framework an interpretive framework that excluded the possibility of any possible demonic activity in the late 20th century. Just was incomprehensible to them that that would happen. But I perceived that going on pretty commonly around me on the coastside where I lived at that time. There were spirit shops. There was div- t- they treated it as divination. There's all kinds of demonic occult things going on, which passed right by my professors. They, uh, they tried to talk me down and they suggested some other topics other subjects that were safe I continued my search my, my, uh, my thesis project first I had to rewrite it because I had written my thesis as sermonic material I intended to share that with people and they went no 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 this has to be scholarly footnoted it has to have a synopsis in the front and a biography at the back. And I went, really? You know, who's going to read that? You know? <laughs> Nevertheless, I did that. I took some months, got it worked out. Then I went back to the Graduate Theological Union Library at Berkeley. And I sat in the stacks and I read. I just pulled the books off and, and I would do a search. I went through the, the, I learned how to use the library search systems. And I was calling in books from all over related libraries to try and find what I was looking for. <clears throat> months later. I found a, a quote by a, a Greek philosopher that predates Paul, who talked very openly about demonic entities and the powers they expressed and how that affected the world around them. Now, I don't know that Paul used him as source material, but Paul was very well read on Greek philosophers. And he himself had had experiences with demons in his missionary journeys on Cy- Crete, Cyprus, Cyprus, island of Cyprus. He comes up against the king's magician, if you will. And it was flat out demonic. And Paul stands up and addresses him. And at that point is no longer being called Saul of Tarsus. He becomes Paul. He becomes radically changed in that encounter to see the demon go down. Later in Philippi, he's stopped in the marketplace by the girl this, this young woman who is telling fortunes 
and she turns on him and Silas and says, you're the servants of the Most High God. And he turns on her and says, be silent and come out of her. And he casts out the demon, this python spirit. So Paul had first-hand, first-hand experiences with demonic encounters. And then lastly, he was, he was a pro. He was, he was perhaps one of the best Old Testament scholars of his day. So I took that quote that predates Paul, and I inserted that into the thesis. And the first mention, which is one of the rules, first mention, carried the day with my thesis, and I graduated magnum cum laude. Shortly after graduation, I got a phone call from one of my professors, and he wanted to have lunch. Now, he wasn't buying the complete package that I was presenting. My interpretation of certain passages where Paul, I think, talks about this through Galatians and through Colossians and other places, okay? But he sat there and he shared with me that his son had recently been abused by a clearly demonized man. I had a chance to pray for that grieving father. Then... He kind of summoned himself and he said, oh, by the way, your thesis is going to be put in the library collection at Cambridge University. That was a feather in his cap. Uh, mine too, but, you know, the fact that he was an advisor, that, that sort of counts for him. And then he said, would I consider doctoral studies? Now, my passion, that, that was going to be a feather, a feather in his cap too. He was sort of sponsoring me into doctoral studies. My passion was to preach and teach and disciple, and I had nothing in me that I wanted to continue to do scholarly research and argumentation. I'd looked long and hard at the scholars that I'd read, and, and those some of those were my professors in seminary. <clears throat> None of them, oh, excuse me. Let, me, let me be gentle here. Uh, I just never saw it. So let me put that. I never saw this. I never sensed this. So I can say gently, none of them ever exhibited or exuded the fragrance of Jesus Christ. They were pleased to be scholars who had arguments and they loved to teach about it. God bless them. Finally, I just I, I told this professor, okay, I'll, I'll think about it. But I, I wasn't serious about that at all. And then lastly, he turned to me and he said, uh, he wanted me to present a paper and oral arguments to the Evangelical Theological Society. And I nodded and I said, thank you for offering that, opening the way for that. No, thank you. I declined. I, I knew the players who were part of the Evangelical Theological Society. I'd read their materials. Um, and um, they, they were uh, powerful rhetoricians. Uh, they loved argument. There's a few good illustrations in their books, but as, I could, as much as I could tell, very little fragrance of the presence of Christ. So turn to verse 17. Paul is let off the chain to confront some of what had been plaguing the fellowships in Corinth. And he said this, For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now, Paul wrote that he and we are not hucksters. We're not peddlers. We don't add or subtract from the scriptures. The word peddler is kapaloi. It was a distinct class 
in the Jewish, excuse me, in the, in the Greek, excuse me, in the Greek culture. And Kapaloi were those who were retailers, merchants. And they had a terrible reputation. The most common reference I found to this word were wine merchants who took spoiled, sour, harsh wine and mixed it with some sweeter stuff to just get it to the point where a drunkard could choke it down. And they sold that all over town through their wine shops. Second reference was the sellers in the produce markets who would put beautiful ripe fruit on top of the basket and rotten fruit on the bottom. Paul's response you know, was that um, we're, we're, we're not those who adulterate the scriptural message of Christ's resurrection. He wrote that we are not like those who find attractive passages in the scriptures, and they're there. But the, these others, take them, amplify them, to attract a following, sharing bits and pieces of God's word to the curious, to the broken, to the ignorant, to the hurting, to the seekers, and they get well paid for it. Fifty years ago, Ray Steadman called these ministers religious racketeers. They're still out there, posting and posing, tailoring their teachings to an audience about another gospel. And it includes universalism, extreme grace, extreme forms of legalism, and all of that in the mainstream of Christianity. Now the sects and cults and progressive Christianity, that's a whole other matter. Paul's response was that we are of the new covenant. And we minister from a position of security, sincerity, and purity. Again, the word for sincerity and purity is elikroneia. It means unmixed, pure, and set in the sun. Now the latter part of that definition speaks to the potters in the marketplace. They're part of the kapiloi. They're part of the merchants. Okay? And they were, they were the men and women who created large, functional urns and vases and, and pots for household use. And they would uh, sit on a rotating table. You've seen potters work, and they, and they kick the treadle, and it roll. they take wet hands, and they lay hands on a block of this wet clay, and they cast it. They throw it. Excuse me. They, they throw the pot. And it was, it was a big, these were big pots. They were carrying water for storing manuscripts, for laundry, for, you know, whatever. They were useful in the households. And if this particular pot had been, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Commissioned. If the pot had been commissioned by a family to have a whole set of personalized embossed jugs for their house, you know, then he would take a stylus and he'd mark it with a crest of that family. He'd put other markings on it. He would glaze it in chosen colors, maybe the flag that flies outside that house, and put the handles on and slide it very carefully into the furnace. And with a, when you got the furnace full of pots, you close it up, fire that furnace, and it would burn for two days maybe more. At the end of that, they had to wait a couple more days for it to cool down and then reach in and pull out these pots. Not all pots survived uncracked. But rather than putting the broken ones in the, in the bin over there, the kapaloi, the peddler, the huckster, the, you know, the potter would take wax and mix it with powdered clay 
mix it with the colors of the glaze and work that in to smooth the surface, touch it up with a little paint, and set that pot out in the shade as whole goods. And Paul says, Elecrinea means to set it in the sun. And so if you took that pot and set it out in the hot sun, the wax would soften and run, and the fraud could be seen by everybody. Paul says, we're, uh, we are unmixed, and we're pure, and we can take full sunlight. Thank you. Paul wrote, he, we minister in the new covenant with purity, not mixed motives, not cobbled together semi-truths. We are the genuine article, and so is our message. He continued with, quote, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now, the Hebrew National Sausage Company has a marketing directive. It says, we answer to a higher authority. Paul knew and we know that our deliverer and comforter whose grace triumphed over us. We've been rescued and redeemed from sin and death and put on display as evidence of God's love and mercy. Paul made it clear that we do not use worldly cunning. This passage declares that Paul's message and ours comes from God who will judge him and his message. Paul never backed down. He never preached for consensus. Paul wrote to us as one in Christ, which is true for all believers. Paul's elements of integrity are to be our elements of integrity. Now today, evangelist Mario Murillo is calling the church to sobriety and repentance for trading the ministry of evangelism and the impartation of the Holy Spirit to new believers in exchange for staged worship with, quote, big screens, skinny jeans, and fog machines, unquote. Many who minister today in America have opted to attract seekers. Okay, that's a category for those. They're, they're not believers yet, but they're sort of checking it out. They, they got some questions. You know, they've heard that you put on a good show, and there's food afterwards. Okay? And so they come. They come seeking. Okay? But those who preach to them often are not preaching the whole gospel. They'll preach something that's attractive or useful, but it's not the whole deal. Scott Haifman wrote of this situation in the church. He said, regarding Christian ministry, we do not... Excuse me. Who do most people prefer to follow? What train do they readily jump on? But surely not that of the weak and the dying. The preferred train is that of personality and performance and success. The successful ministry rides on savoir faire and a message dependent on technique and technology and going out of great worship environments and effect the latest in corporate management techniques. Both our brothers are saying that the fragrance of Christ is only loosed when we're being led in a triumphal procession as the Lord's captives of grace through the cross. Ministers of the new covenant must be committed to the whole word of God. Not snippets, not slants, not teaching that's easily received and easily practiced. Remember that we walk in God's triumph 
brought about by the victory of Jesus Christ over us. Now, everyone I know, and I mentioned this before, everyone I know who's been in church somewhere has had some hard experiences. Maybe it was just a passing abrasion. And maybe it was deeper wounds. For us, the question is, are we clinging to our Redeemer and our Savior or are we led astray by someone who mixes the message of Scripture and of Jesus with ways of getting back control over our lives? See, the operant word here is control. So when you're hurt or, you're, or you feel rejected, very often what rises up in us is something that is labeled an inner vow. And you say something like, I'll never go back there. I will never go to any other church either. I will never let anybody hurt me like that. Etc. Now, it's really easy then for a wounded believer to be moved along and swept along to easily step astray, easily seduced to another gospel. If life is in the hands of Holy Spirit, He controls and helps us zoom out so we find our place again in the triumph of Christ. So, Forge family, the ministry of grace and mercy in you by the power of God is rooted in your own view of where you stand in this triumph parade of Christ. That could be a place of receiving life unto life or in some little back corners or in a pocket or something private in a closet where there's hurt and there's still a remainder, a control issue over your own self and your emotions and your circumstances. You, you know, literally could find yourself standing in the reek of death and feeling distance from God. So, what is it that you're exuding? Is it life unto life? Is it the fragrance of Jesus Christ? If it's not, then take the opportunity to just say, Oh Lord, I don't know what to do with this. I need some help. And that help is here. There's people here who, who lead and instruct and encourage and remind and walk with you. See that little bit of death unto death leave and be gone forever. And like Paul, when you're burnt crisp, you're exhausted, you're discouraged, you're despondent, maybe there's tears, you're hurting. Where do you go for rescue and repair? You zoom out. You give thanks to God for the victory in Christ and then stand again in that triumph with Christ as a captive of His grace and mercy and not in the swamp of emotion and hurt and out of control. Shift thyself by faith and recognize who is in ultimate control. Press for more of that fragrance of life. Once you've experienced that, get ready to lead others out of the swamp and back into the triumph of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your victory on the cross. We thank you for your victory over us. We come as eager servants, captive to your love and mercy, captive to your wisdom and understanding, Lord. Again, we 
relinquish control and choose to walk in your ways. We would be addicted to that fragrance of your presence and the fragrance that's released through us, which points others to life if they so choose. In Jesus' name, amen.